Wake up and smell the calamity! TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. This is Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour if our luck holds up. And of course, if we stay on the good side of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, Benny? Doing very well, very well. And the DNC is in the books. Yes, it is. That was a Ooh, very good digital man. convention. Right. I thought that was fascinating when Joe Biden won the nomination. You see that uh, they can save money. The DNC, they aren't spendthrifts. What came down from the ceiling was equivalent to the kind of decorations you'd see at a five-year-old's birthday party. But we're totally <laughs> okay with that. <laughs> we weren't going to waste a lot of money with this convention. So uh, anyway, I and I really, really enjoyed Joe Biden's speech last night and Kamala Harris's the night before. I thought that uh, for a first time out, you got to give people credit yeah. because I don't think the average person realizes what it takes to shift the way you present something so important when you're used to the old paradigm. Right. Exactly. Oh, let me hang. Just let me pick up one thing off the floor. Oh, there are those uh, five-year-old uh, <laughs> party horns. Gotta See, love just- them. Gotta love you them. just doubled their budget. I did. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Life is good. And we find that out sometimes even in the most trying of circumstances, even in the midst of tragedy, which can be rather a crucible for those of us who have had to face dire circumstances. And some of us, instead of running away from trouble, even a fire, even a conflagration will run toward it with the best of intentions and a skill set that makes them equal to the task. Today, we're going to meet someone like that, Suzanne. Yes, we are. How about if I give him his mad props and we bring him on? And this is little, a little bit longer it, than longer we usually than usual, go, but, but it's, it's so well written. It's chock full of information. You're going to want to know about this man. For over 30 years, Hirsch Wilson has been a volunteer firefighter slash EMT with the Hondo Fire Department in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. He is also a storyteller committed to explaining how first responding can change how we see and experience our own lives. He's a writer, speaker, and consultant. In the past 25 years, Hirsch has worked extensively with leadership teams from a variety of organizations including Kodak, IBM Japan, Altria, the U.S. Postal Service, the CIA, Kraft Foods, and Baxter, to name a few. He has co-written three national business bestsellers with Larry Wilson, including the award-winning Play to Win, Choosing Growth Over Fear in Work and Life. Hirsch attended Colorado College, and he graduated with a B.A. in English from the University of Minnesota prior to becoming a writer and consultant. Hirsch was a dancer. He performed in Canada, Switzerland, and the United States. He also worked as a commercial pilot and a soccer coach. Hirsch and his ex-firefighter wife, Lori, have two daughters, Bryn and Sully, and one granddaughter, Fiona Scout. They have a house full of dogs with two Bernice Mountain dogs, Nellie and Tank, and one rescue terrier chihuahua named Maisie. Hirsch writes a monthly column on dogs for the Santa Fe New Mexican, and we are pleased to bring him on his debut on Manson Mitchell. Welcome, Hirsch Wilson. 
Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Well, good. We are too, Hirsch. And to just set the mesa, as it were, why don't we talk about how you came to be a Santa Fe, New Mexican, because you have quite the background and you studied in Minnesota, very different terrain from where you've lived for the last few <laughs> decades. That's the truth. Um, I grew up in Minnesota in a, uh, in a small farming community. Um, I went to college in uh, Colorado, and I, I thought that was my first time uh, being in the mountains, and I thought it was the most amazing, wonderful, magnificent place I'd ever seen. Um, but after, after two and a half years at Colorado College, I fell in love with ballet and dance, and so I kind of devoted the next 10 years to dancing. Uh, and uh, studied in Colorado, studied in Minnesota, then went to Canada for a Winnipeg Ballet, and then to Switzerland and danced in Switzerland. Um, after about eight years, of course, your knees start to go, so I came home and uh, back to Minnesota and went back to one of my first loves, flying. So I became a flight instructor for a while, and then my wife Lori and I um, decided to move out to Santa Fe, New Mexico, back to the mountains, uh, for work. And we both had uh, jobs here. I was writing and she was working at a conference center uh, in Santa Fe. And we've been here. That was about 1984. And we've been here ever since. It was interesting in your book, Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. Right from the outset, you say that becoming a firefighter was not your idea. And yet you hung in with it longer than your wife. So how did that all happen? Well, it started uh, when Lori was working at a conference center, which was in rural New Mexico, about an hour away from Santa Fe. They had a client, uh, a guest, fall and break her ankle. So what happened there, they had no medical people at the conference center. Uh, and, they, you know, they, so they did what they could. They called the ambulance. They got the uh, poor woman to the hospital. And Lori was determined that that was never going to happen again. So she went to and took an emergency medical technician class, which is about six months long. She did that, and at the end, the instructor said, uh, said you know, if you want to keep your skills up, because there are a lot of skills uh, in being an EMT, uh, why don't you join a, fire, a local volunteer fire department so you can, you can continually go on calls and work in the medical area? And so Lori said yes, but in her mind, what she was thinking is that we were both going to join. Um, so she came home and told me this, that we were going to join a volunteer fire department. And I thought that's crazy. I could not see myself breaking down doors with an ax, thinking about blood and gore. I just thought uh, that was the strangest idea I'd ever heard. I had never heard of a volunteer fire department. But she dragged me to our first meeting. And in our first meeting, there were, it was, you know, kind of a, um, menagerie of different kinds of people. There were lawyers, contractors, writers, painters, because it's Santa Fe. And they're all sitting down, and they're passing on a picture of um, an accident they had responded to, which unfortunately the, the patient had died and was still in the car. And they were passing on the picture. And um, they passed it to Lori. She was just intrigued uh, by the, by the you know, cause of death and, and the incident. They passed it to me, and I almost passed out. I just could not believe <laughs> these people. Um, but I went home, and Lori said, maybe you can just run the engines, right? Learn how to run the engines. So reluctantly dragging my feet, um, she got me involved. She was very excited to keep involved and, and 
start going on calls. It took me about two or three more months to really uh, kind of see that this was something that I needed to do, that I would love to do. It was really a missing part of my life. You know, um, I have. I was trying to think back as to how many firefighters I know, and I actually personally know three. Mm-hmm. And and it was interesting in your book that you talk about how many of them are volunteers. When I think of firefighters, I'm from Chicago, and right. so I'm familiar with the big red trucks in Chicago. And if we have all seen firefighters in New York City, especially after 9-11. And so in my mind, firefighters belong to a firefighters union, and they come in big groups, and they are all you know, well-paid professionals. But in your book, you say all over this country, there are many, many volunteer firefighters. So when you're saying you didn't realize there was even volunteers doing this, you since discovered that's quite a bit of what's going on in the United States, isn't it? Right. So there are about 1.3 million firefighters in the United States, and 70% of them are volunteers. So um, the larger cities, of course, have career firefighters. And medium cities sometimes have career or mixed uh, career and volunteer fire departments. And then the smaller communities all across the country have volunteers. Um, And, you know, I mean, and and they do the same job because fires don't discriminate. You know, car accidents, cardiac arrests don't discriminate. So out of the 60 firefighter deaths in 2017, 32 of them were volunteers. So uh, we do the same work. Um, we are we are subject to the same kinds of, of problems and fires and issues and deaths that uh, career folks are. I think, um, and the other thing about volunteers that's a little different is where the career people work in shifts, a 24 or 48-hour shift, then they're off. Volunteers are on 24-7. So their pager can go off anytime, day or night, uh, um, all the time, all week long. So that's kind of the difference uh, between volunteers and career guys. But, but there are um, a lot, a lot of volunteers all over the country. And, and uh, we saw a drop of, in volunteers um, after uh, 9-11, or after 2008, the recession in 2008. But now those numbers are starting to pick up again. That is good to know because of the very necessary work you perform. Yeah. Hirsch, let me ask you, you used a phrase, it's intriguing, and so, and I'm sure it bears some explanation, so I want to give you some time to explain what you mean by the term firefighter universe. Right. So when you become a firefighter, it's like putting on another pair of glasses. Um, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but most of us live our lives thinking that life is, um, is essentially neutral. Um, and we have plans. And we know who we want to be, uh, and we can we kind of can bet on what's going to happen next week. Now, you know, big alarm bells. That's how we thought until March 11th this year, when all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And we all threw away our calendars. Um, but in general, we think of life as is relatively predictable. When you step into the firefighter universe, you realize that's an illusion. Um, firefighters every day see people's lifelines, if you will, being interrupted, their plans being interrupted. Um, They learn right away 
that life is fragile, uh, life is temporary, and uh, and at any any time of the day or night, something could happen that can be a tragedy. The other thing, so that's the that's the first difference in the firefighting universe from from how everybody else sees the world. I think secondly, we learn quickly that life is short, right? Um, that uh, we we attend uh, enough. Um, death, cardiac arrest, and and uh, and other kinds of death that we understand deep in our soul that life is short, right? Uh, and not only is it short, but there is suffering. When you become a firefighter, you are exposed to the suffering of others at a, at a high level, and you begin to realize that everybody suffers. Um, Buddha said, "Life is suffering," and as a firefighter, you really learn that is true. So the, the elements of the firefighter universe are, you know, life is short, um, there's suffering, and then there's this thing called the glitch. And the glitch is this, that um, we, might, we might think that we're going to live to 70, to 80, to 90, um, but things happen every day. A, a, a man clutches his chest in the Starbucks and falls to the floor. Um, a mom and dad come home and they find their son upside down in the bathtub half blue with drug paraphernalia on the sink. Those things happen every day. Uh, and we learn, and firefighters learn, um, we're saddened by it, um, we're affected by it, but we're not surprised that those things happen every day. And so that, that's kind of the firefighter universe. It's a little darker, but, but I think the key thing is when you strip away all the illusions that we carry, what firefighters understand, what they learn, is that the path to joy, to being the fulfilled human being uh, in that universe is helping others, is being in service, is going towards the fire, going towards the tragedy. We, when we learn that, we have a shot at really authentic joy in life. And so that kind of describes the firefighter universe. Now, of course, the twist is there's no such thing as the firefighter universe. That's the universe we all live in. But some of us are blind to it. And, our, and the job of the book is to say, hey, this is what life is really like. Um, and it's, it's not the illusions we've been taught about that life is about material wealth, that life is about um, material wealth giving us happiness or promotions or money. There's a, there's a deeper drumbeat in the universe, and we need to pay attention to it. Now, I think what's happened uh, with the pandemic uh, and the recession is that we are we are all kind of waking up to this fact, and and I think I, my hope is that we're going to get through the pandemic. We're going to um, we're going to be maybe not the way we were, but we're going to be fine. But I hope that we hold on to the sense of what life is really like, and then we can move on for that and be, and be a kinder and gentler uh, and more caring place. Well, the election's November 3, so we'll see how that pans out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Her, oh, yeah. Her, uh, I, you know, Gary and I read every word of your book, and you know what we like about it is that you start us at the beginning. I mean, you, you told the story about how it was your wife, Lori, who first said, you know, I'm never going to let that happen again in my presence. And, and kind of uh, encouraged you to get involved with the firefighters. You've been in it more than 30 years. The book is not something that you could have written in year one because 
you have 30 years of experiences in here, some of which, Gary said, we, we are not going to be able to talk about on the radio. You're going to have to read the book to get into some of the really unbelievably tragic, gory, horrible things that you've been through, all of which have shaped your perspective in the world about being a firefighter. And I wanted to um, I wanted you to tell another little story before our break here. And that is the story of the 87th problem. And then I'd like you to make the distinction that you make about emergencies, problems, and inconveniences. So will you do that? Absolutely. So uh, the 87th problem story is, I use this all the time, uh, especially now. Um, And the story is a Zen story, and it goes like this. So there's a man, and uh, he has a problem. And he can't come up with a solution to the problem, so he decides to search the world for the answer. So he sells all his possessions and goes on a year-long trek to find the answer. Well, finally, out of money and exhausted, he finds this one uh, Zen master. And he walks into the hut of the Zen master and, and says, I'm so glad I found you. I have a problem. And the Zen master says, of course you do. Uh, I know you have a problem. And the man says, well, how can you know I have a problem? And the Zen master says, because we all have problems. We all have exactly, precisely 86 problems. And when we solve a problem, the universe gives us another one so that we always have 86 problems. Well, of course, the man just, his shoulders sagged. He could not believe he came to the Zen master trying to solve this one problem only to find out that he has 86 problems. And the Zen master laughed, and he said, let me give you one piece of advice. There is such a thing, there is an 87th problem. And the man said, what is the 87th problem? And the Zen master said, the 87th problem is believing that you shouldn't have problems. And he said, "Um, our job is to get up every morning, solve problems, laugh, have dinner, go to bed, get up the next morning and solve more problems. Not having problems is called death. And so I always think of that, the man, you know, either he was so discouraged that he just left or he kind of rose to the occasion to understand that our lives are about solving problems and that's what we need to do every day. Um, So that's the 87th story, 87th problem story. Now we take that to the next level Uh, On the fire department, 90% of the calls we go on are not emergencies. Um, The pager goes off, and this is coming from a firefighter perspective. Firefighters see emergencies as life threats, as when somebody's house is burning down or there's a big fire, or like the the emergency in California now where they have over 300 fires going on right now. Those are emergencies. But 90% of the time, we respond to calls that, in our view, are not emergencies. So we had to come up with different language to understand what we're doing. And um, the word I use uh, for, the, for most of the stuff to go on, it's not emergency. It's, it's this mantra. It's this magic word that I, I should charge a lot of money to use. But the word is inconvenience, right? Inconvenience. And 
what we find out if, if uh, you know, uh, we go to a call, a 911 call, where someone needs help getting back into bed, um, someone needs their driveway plowed, uh, someone's broken an ankle, those are not tragedies and emergencies. Those are simply inconveniences, the problems to be solved. So we take that logic and we apply that to our lives, even now during the pandemic. If you normally what happens in our brains when something negative happens is we can ramp up that problem uh, to make an emergency. For example, you're in your car, uh, you're stuck in traffic, you're late for a meeting, and our, our mind, if we don't control it, immediately goes insane. And it starts saying things like, I'm going to be late for the meeting, uh, my boss is going to be mad, he's going to give me a bad write-up, he might fire me, if I get fired, I'm going to go home, um, my husband or my wife is going to divorce me, I'm going to end up penniless on the street. And that happens in our brains instantaneously. And of course, we're thinking four alarm fire. Oh my God, this is an emergency. This is a tragedy. We get all ramped up. Um, when in, in fact, all, all it is, is is an inconvenience that you're going to be late. So if we can learn the language, say, this is not an emergency. This is simply an inconvenience. It's a problem to be solved. We can stay calmer and we can solve the problem instead of getting all panicked and ramped up and getting angry. Um, and, and so what we teach, uh, People as they come into the fire department, and I kind of have worked on instilling myself is that self-discipline to ask ourselves, is this an emergency or is this simply an inconvenience? If you think of the pandemic, there's a lot of emergency in this pandemic. People are dying. People are sick, right? People have lost their jobs and, and, and you know, like they have no income. Um, but a lot of what we're going through being stuck at home, um, you're being socially isolated. It's not a true emergency. It's an inconvenience. It has a, you know, we will get over it, but it's not worth getting completely ramped up about. So we have to be really good in our brains about prioritizing what's an emergency, what's a problem, and what's an inconvenience. And if we can have that mental discipline, we can stay calmer and we can be more creative. And that, on a fire scene, crucial for us to be calm and to be creative. So we really have to control our thinking um, to be able to do those things. And that's why we work so hard, so hard, so hard on kind of mentally disciplining ourselves in the fire service. There is a lot more to be said about this train of thought provided by our guest today, Hirsch Wilson. He is the author of Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. And late breaking news, we're in tough times. Hirsch Wilson is our honored guest of this hour. He has so much to say that can be incorporated into your personal philosophy. And on the other side of this break, I have a couple of, well, one story in particular and one observation, that would be a good way of putting it. Mental note to self, bring that up to Hirsch because I would love to get your response, Hirsch Wilson, when we come back from a two-minute break. Suzanne, I, Hirsch, and bad boy Benny Mathers are so glad to have you with us on this edition of Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes, and we will be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. 
staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. If you talk they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcome Hirsch Wilson, author of Zen Firefighter, really great stories and powerful lessons. On Saturday, Mary Lee LeBay takes us on a journey through hypnotherapy, our past lives, and why they are important today. Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Hirsch Wilson. He's the author of Firefighter Zen, a field guide to thriving in tough times. Now appearing with the Ohio players. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hirsch, if people would like to get your book or connect with you, what is your website? Where can they get the book and anything else that you would like to share with us about... uh, your social media. Sure, thank you. So, uh, first of all, I think it's really important now to support our local bookstores. So, um, most bookstores, uh, if uh, they can order the book for you, if they don't have it in stock, so that's kind of the first place to go. Um, it's available on Amazon.com. Um, my my website um, is HirschWilson.com. That's H-E-R-S-C-H Wilson.com. And then I'm also active on Facebook and Twitter. And twi- my Twitter handle is at Braving Fires. 
Uh, what was it? Uh, Twitter handle again? Um, at Braving Fires, one word. Braving, Braving Fires. Oh, that's good oh, yeah. to know. Yes, we Very have uh, at Mance Mitchell Twitter account. I will make sure to follow you, sir. All right. Great. The story I wanted to tell, wow, this was told to me uh, before the turn of the new millennium. That's how far back it goes, and I've never forgotten it. It's my first opportunity to tell it on our show. Well, here's how it goes, Hirsch. I met a guy at church in Seattle who had spent some time, a few years actually, in Australia. He met a buddy who was a wildlife biologist, and my friend was asked if he wished to accompany this scientist to the outback. And he said, sure, I'm up for an adventure. And so the two of them went out to the outback with the proper equipment you would need to collect snakes in a sack. And they went out there, and it should be pointed out, if my memory serves, seven of the 10 deadliest poisonous snakes in the world reside in Australia. That is their native yeah. habitat. So there they are collecting these deadly snakes for whatever experiments or study that the scientists uh, wish to put them to. And what my friend told me was, he never recalls a time in his life when he was more aware with a kind of triple intensity awareness of his immediate environment as when he was helping collect. And essentially, you've got a metal stick that you're trying to pin down these snakes so that you can get a hold of them as safely as possible and throw them in the sack. And right. he was doing the work along with his friend, the scientist. And so he said he was just hyper aware of his surroundings as they went through this. But that's not the end of the story, Hirsch. They decided, <laughs> because they're in the outback and it's a hot, dry, dusty day, that they would go into one of the local, let's call it, saloons there that, uh, you know, was pretty much what you would expect in the outback of Australia, okay? So they go into this saloon, and they have their bags with them. And the bartender, I mean, this is just classic, this belongs in a movie. The bartender inquired as to, what do you have there, mates? There, and the scientist told them exactly what they'd been up to and what they had they're secured in these two big sacks. And the response was, that's bulldust, mate. Bulldust being the equivalent of our BS. And my friend there just kind of shook his head like, oh, well, if he doesn't believe us, he doesn't believe us. Not so with the scientist. He said, you mean you don't believe me? I've been out there all day collecting these. Listen, I'm a wildlife biologist, a herpetologist, and you're telling me you don't believe me? Well, let me show you and he emptied oh, the God. sacks onto the floor of the saloon. And out go a couple of dozen slithering death wagons through the saloon. And the way the story was related to me, people, just as in an old Western movie, were jumping out the windows. And they were running away, emptying the place, except for the bartender, who insisted that they pick up every snake and put them back and never show up in his bar again, which they did. <laughs> and so my friend got to have a, yet another hypersensitive slice of reality to collect all of them and then make a quick getaway. Amazing story. 
And he told me certain others from Australia. It's a wild place, babe. When you go there, believe me, pick up your feet when you walk and be aware. And so he told me the story about Australia. And the reason why I'm sharing it with you, Hirsch, and our listeners is because it reminds me of those times when you have to go out on a call. You almost have a kaleidoscopic reality in your head, you know, just these images spinning around, indicating those times when you had to set aside whatever mundane concerns might have occupied your time, sometimes often, in fact, in the middle of the night, in order to respond to an emergency that tested your mettle. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are, are a couple things about being a volunteer firefighter. One is that page can go up at any time of the day or night, no matter what you're doing. The universe doesn't really care about our plans. Um, and, and there are calls that uh, absolutely demand your full attention and your full focus. Uh, and, and that is a rare experience now for the rest of us. Uh, we're so, we're constantly multitasking and we're constantly thinking of the past and worrying about the future. And there are a few moments in our lives that are 100% focusing. And on the fire department, we go to calls where everything drops off uh, except what you're doing in that moment and, and who you're with. And they're very powerful experiences. And they're very addictive experiences when, when you absolutely are living in the moment and, and there to help somebody else and with your brothers and sisters on the, on the department working together. It's... Um, it's an amazing feeling and one that keeps you coming back and coming back um, and staying on the, on the surface. You know, you say coming back and coming back, and I get the addiction part of it because there has to be a huge amount of satisfaction in helping people. At the same time, there is also a, a burnout as well because you have seen too much. You've been to too many emergencies. And also there is a, a high percentage of firefighters that get PTSD. Yeah, um, PTSD and firefighters, in the general population it runs, about 3% of the general population have, have PTSD of some sort. Um, and on the fire service and with police, it's around 30%. So it is uh, something that, that we're working on, uh, I guess, as, um, as officers and professionals uh, all across the country to, to help firefighters uh, avoid PTSD and stress and also be able to treat it when they have it. Um, I think, I think the, the, the larger question is that, and, and what it's helpful and what you get addicted to, it's really helping people, is knowing that you're there in their worst moments. And if you can focus on that, if you can focus on my job is to help, right? My job is to be there when people are in crisis. Uh, and that can help, uh, help lessen the symptoms and lessen the probability of getting PTSD. But a lot of us get caught up in the adrenaline and get caught up in... Um, in the horror of it, rather than just refocusing on, I'm here to help. But I, I think the, and, and the other thing that I think is, is applicable to all of us now, going through the pandemic, 
is that we have to have strategies for mental health. We can't just kind of go through this like it's normal and not take care of ourselves. So uh, on the fire service, we, we really work on, on being physically fit, uh, getting outside every day. I, I walk every morning. That is, that is sacred time to me. Um, I think really controlling our self-talk, um, our mental image of ourselves, and really staying in the community, right? It's, it's the, fire, the firefighters I worry about are the ones who are isolated um, and who don't talk to other people, um, who, who turn to substance abuse. That Those are the ones I worry about. And the same thing with us going through a pandemic. Um, I think someone said, stop using the word social isolation because it's just physical distancing. But now more than ever, we need to be in contact with each other. Uh, that's an important part of our mental health. We need to be physically active. Uh, and um, we need to really kind of inventory what we're thinking to keep it rational and sane. To keep it rational and sane. I'll mention this just by the by. You mentioned a very esteemed gentleman who is no longer with us named Maxie Maltzby. Dr. Maltzby was, a, I believe he was actually a psychiatrist rather yep. than a psychotherapist, but he did great therapeutic work. And there was a uh, mental health clinic that he operated for a time in Las Vegas, Nevada, when I was living there. But I knew about Maxie Maltzby because of his professional association and mutual admiration with and for the late great Dr. Albert Ellis. And yes. in reading your book, Albert Ellis gets a lot of publicity on this show. You know, if, if there's such a thing as the other side, when I get over there, he owes me royalties. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Albert Ellis. But it's the essence of it is Dr. Maltzby and Dr. Ellis both were gentlemen who believed that the more rational you are and the more properly, or shall we say appropriately, you can govern your emotions, not denying them, but expressing them appropriately, the more effective you will be in this world. Absolutely. And, and, and it's so amazing to me that you know Dr. Malfi. He was a mentor to me and to my family. Um, and uh, I have... I have uh, absolutely stole the material from him for the last 20 years. <laughs> he is just a great, great thinker and a thought. And I think he took the whole idea of rational behavior therapy and, and simplified it uh, so that we can all use it in our lives to be, to be much more rational, much more sane, as a, uh, as a result, much happier. Yes, absolutely. In fact, one of his tricks of the trade nice and distinguished way of referring to that. But one of the tools he used was rational emotive imagery. And it harkens back to the classic Stoic philosophers. Why is mm -hmm. this so significant? Because it's so helpful. You can actually imagine yourself, and the ancient Stoics used to teach this. You can put yourself mentally in a situation that you have not experienced. Maybe you're only anticipating it. And then in your imagination, see the worst coming at you, the, the worst possible outcome, and then calmly dealing with it again in your imagination so that by the time the dreaded event arrives, if it ever does, you are prepared mentally and emotionally to cope with whatever is coming at you. And I think if you're going to be a volunteer firefighter, that would be essential training. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're doing a better job. I think uh, the, in the old days when I started, nobody told you, nobody kind of warned you that you were going to see unimaginable stuff. Um, 
you're just kind of thrown into it. Now I think we're doing a better job. Uh, and I, and one of my hopes for the book is that this is a book that anybody who is, you know, it's a book I wish somebody had given me when I was 18 um, to kind of explain what life was going to be about. But also it's a book that I wish somebody had given me when I began being a firefighter to kind of explain the firefighter world um, so that you can kind of sit down and put yourself in those situations and understand how you're going to respond. And I think the, the most important thing to me is that we are, we are uh, by the fact of being human beings, we are tough. Um, we can handle almost anything. It might take some time, but we have that ability. It's latent inside of us. And the problem we're living in is we live in a comfortable, well, you know, up until March, um, we live in a comfortable, wealthy civilization and a society that really tells us kind of not to look, don't talk about death, uh, not to look at tragedy, ignore the people, the homeless people on the street, and just get on with our lives. Um, so we're not, really, we're not really in tune with that. But my message to everybody is we have the emotional strength to deal with much more than, um, than you think you can. And, and what I, the story I tell is my, both my grandparents were born in 1900. So they went through the First World War, the flu epidemic of 18 and 19, uh, the Great Depression, uh, which destroyed my family, uh, the Second World War, um, the Red Scare, the Vietnam War, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the 1968, um, where the kind of world fell apart. They went through all of that, uh, and they, they were happy, um, they were healthy, and they were tough, Right. And, and we're the same people. We, and I, I often think about the greatest generation, uh, and I am in awe of the, those, those folks who survived the Depression and the Second World War um, and really kind of rose to the moment. But I often, I, you know, the, I tell the kids I work with is that we share their genes, we share their stories. The only thing we haven't shared until now is the challenges they faced. And it's the challenges that, that make us tough. It's the challenges that really bring out the best in us. And so we're going through that now. We're going through a challenge. And we can rise to the challenge. I have no doubt that we, uh, we can't rise to this challenge. So um, I, I think that's the important message uh, for people to hear. Because I know right now people are discouraged and, they're, and depression is, is rampant. And people are, are just going like, I can't do this anymore. I can't get up in the morning. Uh, and the message is, yes, you can. You're tough. Take it day by day. We will get through this. There is a, a section in your book, Hirsch, Firefighter Zen, where you talk about grieving. And it occurs to me that firefighters go through multiple, repeated grieving experiences, large and small, from everything that they've seen. And one of the things in that section is that um, you will not be the same. You can't go back. And I think with this COVID-19, people are, are thinking, will it ever be like December of 2019? Are we going to be able to go back? And I have the sense that we really not will not do it in the, in the same way when you're just talking about the pandemic of 1918. 
and the First World War and the Second World War. When these things occur, you cannot recreate a former life in exactly the same way that it was. But you do say under that grieving section that things can get better. They just can't be repeated exactly the way they were. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think a couple things. First of all, I, I don't like the word recover uh, because, re- you know, like recovering from grief, um, because recover implies that we're going to go back to some former state. Um, and that never happens. I mean, that just doesn't happen. We're always changed by trauma. Uh, and, you know, we incorporate, I think the better way to think about it is we incorporate trauma and tragedy into our lives. It becomes part of us. It changes us. We heal. But it's like when, when, you, when you break an arm, there's always a scar. There's always um, something there to remind you that you broke your arm. And it's the same with grief. Uh, and it's the same with big tragedies. Uh, you know, we're, we're designed as human beings. We're designed to move on. We're designed to live. We're designed to get better. But you, you don't recover to a past state. And I think the, the other thing is I always think about it as, as life is this kind of like this river in flood, right, just pushing us forward. And, and you can try to hold on to the past. You can try to hold on um, to the way things are. But time doesn't work that way, and the river just grabs you and pushes you forward. Um, and, and that's kind of what we have to understand now. We are not going back. You can't. Time doesn't run backwards, right? It runs only forwards. And uh, we're going to be different as individuals and as a society. Um, I, I, I just wrote a letter to, um, to the kids that I coach at, uh, at one of the high schools in town. And, you know, the, what I told them was the same thing. It's that this is a life-defining time for you. But the way life works is that it often gives you the test first and then the lesson. And right now we're going through the big test. And the lessons of what we learned will emerge. But we are going to be different. We are going to be changed. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, if you look at the history of us as human beings, at the history of us as a nation, um, we have gone through trouble. Uh, we have gone through catastrophe uh, and we keep moving forward because that's what we're designed to do. One of the things that you suggest in the last part of the book about how to thrive in tough times, what very practical things you can do is the first thing you say is be brave. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what it means to just be brave. Sure. Um, I, I think of it this way. I, I think that um, in order to live a full life, we have to have courage, right? Or the, going through a pandemic or just in our personal lives, we have to have courage. And you think about all the decision points in your life, right? Going back to when you were in high school, all those choices you made to, that, to be comfortable rather than take a risk, Right. Um, asking somebody out, uh, asking somebody to dance uh, at a dance, um, deciding to take an easy class or a hard class, deciding that you're not, you know, you could never be smart enough to do uh, something in science or be a doctor or something like that. All those 
choice points we have in our lives where we most often choose the comfortable path. But we have to learn to ask ourselves in those moments, so what is the brave choice? What is the bravest thing I can do right now? Uh, and get in the habit of that. Uh, and just asking the question, what is the bravest choice, can really change how we act in the moment. Because I think, um, you know, I was talking, I was talking to these, uh, again, kids the other day, and, and we just talked about how so often we get in these situations where we're so afraid of failure or we're so afraid of losing that uh, we just, to, we just choose to avoid, right? When to be to live fully, we have to make those hard choices, and we have to be able to accept failure. We have to be able to accept loss uh, in order to live fully. That's just the way the universe works. That's the way life works. Um, and you get to my age, uh, and you look back and you think, "Oh my God, think of all the choices I made because I was scared, uh, because I didn't want to be uncomfortable." And, and, and there are a lot of life-defining choices that we make because we're irrationally afraid. And I think, so I think, what is the bravest thing I can do right now? It needs to be a mantra that we use when we come up against those kinds of choices, small and large. One of the things that you say is that sometimes the most bravest choice is just to be kind. And, and I've been, we've all been in these situations where, you know, we're shopping, we're afraid, we've got our masks on, we're, you know, concerned about uh, being out in the world right now. And um, I have found myself in both scenarios, one where I, I just, I was sarcastic and snotty to somebody because I didn't like what they were doing. And mm -hmm. then in other times where I kept my mouth shut and I just wanted to be kind to somebody. And, and, and you said sometimes the bravest choice is to be kind. And isn't that very important right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we've learned, I've learned as a firefighter is that, um, and, and I've learned this from the people around me uh, as firefighters, is that we're often remembered more for our kindness than for the big, big red trucks. And, and for every act of bravery, there are a hundred opportunities to be kind. Um, and Robin Williams, before he died, he said that be kind always because everybody has a story. And I think, I think when we look out in the world, especially now with everybody's, you know, wearing masks or some people so angry that they're not going to wear masks, but uh, so it's, it's, we're seeing each other in, in a different way now, but behind those masks, um, Everybody is afraid. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got something on, something going on. And once you realize that, and boy, being a firefighter teaches you that, that everybody has a story. But once you understand that, it's easier to be kind. And I think, I think the next thing is, it's, it's like, how do you want to be remembered? Right? How do you want to be remembered? Uh, do you want to be remembered for being, having a, you know, three of the most successful quarters in your business? Uh, being the best salesperson or, or whatever? Or do you want to be remembered for being a kind and purpose, purposeful person? And I choose to be remembered or I try as, as being kind. I'm not the strongest. I'm not the best firefighter. Um, 
I have problems. I got issues with family, but but I want to be remembered as being kind. That's in my control. And so, I talk about radical kindness in the book, and radical kindness is with that as a backdrop of, of finding opportunities every day to be kind. They don't have to be big ones. It's like opening a door for someone. It's like letting somebody get in front of you in traffic. Big deal. So you're going to be, you know, five seconds later. Um, but all those opportunities. Second, is understand that um, your act of kindness does not mandate that somebody thank you, right? Uh, that when we when we open a door for somebody and they don't thank us, our ego gets involved. How dare you not thank thank me for my incredibly generous act of opening the door for you, right? Um, we got let. We just have to let that go, and then understand that in the universe, you, you know, kindness is ne- not necessarily reciprocal, um, and that's okay. Uh, you, the goal is for me to be kind and me to affect the world with my kindness, uh, and I think that firefighting has really taught me that that's um, the best thing we can be in the world, and especially right now. I want to get the title of the book out there again. Everybody get a copy of this. You're going to improve the quality of your life if you read and absorb the lessons contained in Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Hirsch Wilson is the author. He is a a volunteer firefighter, a guy who puts his life on the line to save and help other human beings. And many times they're animals as well. And there's a particularly sad story there. If you go online to the Santa Fe New Mexican once a month, you write a, I call it the dog blog, but you write a column about dogs. Many, many people who listen to this show, Hirsch, are big dog and cat lovers. And I'm so happy that you have that affinity with the animal kingdom. We learn from them, too. Absolutely, every day. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Hirsch. And I know that we'll be talking again. I can think of three or four things I didn't get to, which I knew would be the case. And that's okay because that gives us an excuse to call you up and ask you to come by and do another hour with us. You're welcome anytime on Manson Mitchell. Love to. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. Coming up next. Stay tuned. Uh, Today, Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, followed by American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Thank you for the mention. Yes, we're going to have a lot of fun. The new issue is out digitally, American Road Magazine. But before we get to that, we're going to take one more trip along Route 66 for a barn find tour, going barn hunting and all the wonderful finds. There's gold in them, their barns just up ahead. So be sure to tune in at one o'clock on 1150 AM KKNW. And join us tomorrow. 10 AM Pacific right here and always online at 1150 KKNW.com. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.